Well, you picked a wonderful week to come here to Chicago. The weather's been spectacular. Mm-hmm. You should come back and visit us in January or February. <laughs> uh, it might, might change your mind about the town. <laughs> I was here in October a few times, and that, that did it enough, let alone January. Oh, yeah. October's my favorite month of the year. Can in be, New York. It can be... Di- <laughs> You found Booth One on your podcast dial. I'm Gary Zabinski, your host with the most in the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. I'm joined in the booth today by another in our stream of fascinating and talented guests. Mary Jo Dupre is an actress, director, and vocal coach working out of Los Angeles. She's visiting here, as you heard, in Chicago and has been kind enough to spend some time with us in the booth today. Tell us about Mary Jo Dupre. I liked Studs Terkel's famous opening interview question so much that I'm going to use it again here as I did with Mark Larson on our last episode. <laughs> Who are you? Who am I? Well, that's a multifaceted <laughs> and where question. Do you, and where I, do you come from? I'm a renaissance woman. <laughs> yeah, are you? <laughs> yeah, I've definitely had a, a lot of different lives that have kind of started to all come together. I'm originally from Long Island. You grew up on the I, East Coast. I grew up on the East Massapequa, Coast. Massapequa, right? Massapequa, Long Island. The home to many, uh, the, the Baldwin brothers and Jerry Seinfeld and all sorts of people and not far from Billy Joel and lots of great artistic people from the area. And I went to theater school at Vassar College and... I didn't know you could go to theater school at Vassar. Well, it's more of a liberal arts sure. degree. I think lately, though, they've changed it more and made it a little bit more, a little more conservatory-ish. But when I was there, it was pretty straight-up liberal arts kind of fair. Were you there before they allowed boys in? No way. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know when that happened. No, that I, happened I, in I, 1972. That, oh, was, that was when uh, Meryl Streep was there. So Forgive um, me. Yeah, I, no, no, I beg no. your pardon. No, I wasn't that, that silly. Yeah, I went there. I actually spent a year in London, my junior year in London, where I studied theater, you know, more acting classes and stuff to get a little bit more conservatory training. Then right when I got out of school, my older sister, Katie Agresta, who had been studying for the opera, she'd been teaching voice for a very long time and had adapted her vocal technique for rock singers. And she'd been doing this for quite a long time. She's a bit older than I am. And right as I was getting out of school, her long-term student, Cindy Lauper, hit big and we opened wait there's a little bit of a name drop (laughs) yeah yeah well cindy lopper and twisted sister everybody in the tri-state area was in a rock band was studying with kate the whole thing sort of took a life of its own so when i got out of school she trained me to teach singing and i also ran her studio on the upper west side we had about four or five teachers there and we had a rock and roll vocal studio so this is the approach by your sister it's an adaptation from her teacher his name was dr edward dwyer and and he taught a lot of the Met Chorus, and she'd been assigned o- to him. Opera-type singing. Op- a pure opera, yeah. She she was a student at Hofstra, and she was assigned to Dr. Dwyer. And so they took this Italian bel canto opera training and sort of took out some of the purification elements, some of the placement stuff, and just emphasized strength training and also a kind of a therapeutic recovery system for rock singers to sort of clear out some of the damage. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. that happens. And um, it's very, very effective. And she taught countless celebrities. And I was teaching for her as well. And after many years of this, I had originally gone to school as an actress. So I I stopped teaching, moved out to LA to pursue acting myself. I kind of set the the voice teaching down for a while and thought, I got to do me. 
So I went out to LA and I was working in theater and lots of commercials and some TV improv out there. And I became a masseuse, actually. <laughs> I went well, to massage I, school. I, I might take advantage of that. Well, in that, a that actually while. comes in later because that was really helpful for, for voice teaching and the vocal work that I ended up doing later. So I was just, you know, working actor for a really long time. Later on, a, a friend of mine asked me, who was teaching at a community college out there, if I wanted to teach acting and voice for speech. And I said, sure. And my colleague, an old friend, uh, one of my music directors from a musical I was in, Jeremy Mann, became the head of singing at UCLA and got in touch with me and said, does your sister have anybody that could teach a rock class at UCLA? And I said, <laughs> I can do that. You know, well, and I, how serendipitous. I had, yeah. And I hadn't taught singing for a long time, but mm -hmm. I went into UCLA and brought Katie's work into the program. And along with my other colleagues on the vocal uh, department there, we really moved that program forward. And it's now quite sought after. And we have countless students working in professional musical theater. I ran into Davy Diggs, which is another you know, right. Story. We'll talk yeah. about that. Yeah. You, you so you moved out to L.A. Yeah. to really pursue your acting career because that's what you were initially right. trained at. Yes, uh, at Vassar, mm -hmm. and then you kind of missed it, and you wanted to get back to that. But you've then segued more into being a director these days. Well, how that happened is when I found that I was really enjoying teaching at the university level. I didn't have a master's, so I thought I need a master's, and I assumed that I would always get it in acting. But when I started to talk to the faculty. I had been a professional actor for so long that Mel Shapiro, who was the head of UCLA at the time and had been the head of Carnegie Mellon for years, said to me, that's ridiculous for you to get an MFA. Why don't you get it in directing? And you'd be a lot more valuable on a faculty. And people had started to ask me to direct, but I felt a little gun shy about it because I knew as an actor that there was a little bit more to it than I was perceiving from that side of the sure. table. So, and I'm the kind of person that likes to study things. So I took a few classes at UCLA as an MA. My work was at a caliber where the faculty brought me in and said, why don't you be an MFA in directing? You've you're clearly really talented at this, and uh, well, that's and then I embarked. I was, and I embarked in, in the yeah in the MFA at, at UCLA, and then yeah. I start to realize uh, all this eclectic work that I had done as a I was a stand-up for a while too. I mean, I have really eclectic wow. acting career. No, I was able to draw on a lot of different experiences in my work as a as a director. And a lot of times people ask me, "What do you like to direct?" And I don't consider myself an auteur. I can do a realistic play. I can sure. do a comedy really well. I've worked in music theater. I'm interested in the avant-garde. So I try and meet the plays where they are. You're like an octuple threat. <laughs> you you threat, do a little bit of, of yeah, everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. You work regularly at the Theatricum Botanicum. Yes. An open-air theater in L.A. Mm -hmm. founded by actor Will Gear of the Waltons fame. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a story or the story about this theater and how it was first established and why, and then how you came to work there. It's it's a fascinating story. Will Gear, as you know, played Grandpa on, on the Waltons, yeah. and back in the the forties and fifties, he you know he had a very successful film and television career, and then he and, was, and a stage career. Yes, as well. yes, yes, of course, and he was blacklisted. He, he got put on McCarthy's blacklist. It was devastating to his career, and they lost everything and their home down in Santa Monica. He was unable to work as an actor, like so many people were. But he had this property up in Topanga Canyon. There's The canyons are above the, yeah. the ocean up there. And I think he was taking odd jobs in, in different ways as 
carpenter or whatever, but he built a stage up there and started putting on Shakespeare plays with his friends to keep his artistic life going. Outdoors. In, Outdoors. In, in a, a bucolic, stadium little, little setting, yeah, right? which yeah. has grown over yeah. the 40 years. And and then they had a whole they had a whole farm going on at that point. Yeah, and I believe um, Arlo growing Guthrie vegetables and, and fruit and he, herbs and selling them because they needed to make a living doing yes, this, right? Yes, he was, he was trying to survive. The, and, what and McCarthy so he, had yeah. done to him. And yeah. so he builds mm-hmm. this theater and then he starts inviting what other blacklisted performers yeah. to come up and yeah. and do mm-hmm. concerts and and stage plays right yeah and and mainly shakespeare because it's public domain i yeah. guess you know plus they the family it now Free. it still is a family concern and they have a great great love for shakespeare and ellen she was a little girl when all this happened and she you this know, is ellen gear ellen gear his daughter she had spent some time early in the early years at guthrie and act but she has been at the helm of this theater for you know they've been up there for 40 years. Mm. She and her sister, uh, stepsister Melora, are there and her daughter Willow and her brothers and they do five plays a season and it's quite a, a, a legendary place and I got my equity card there 20 years wow, ago. Wow, congratulations. Young, when I was a young actress, I auditioned yeah. for them and Ellen hired me and I spent a summer on stage there. And then later at UCLA, Ellen was also on the faculty at UCLA. So she and I started just bumping into each other as I was getting my directing degree. And then I heard through the grapevine about two years ago, she was looking for an outside director for August Osage County. So I got in touch with her and said, how about me? And she said, fine. (laughs) So So you directed August Osage County, the Tracy Let's Play, uh, up at the Theatricum Botanicum. Do they call it the Theatricum or Botanicum for short? The the short is the Theatricum. The Theatricum. theatricum. It's named after a work about, well, botany Mm -hmm. uh, from the 1600s written by a gentleman named John Parkinson, and it it literally means theatrical garden. Tell me about some of the folk singer people that he had up there early on. I think Arlo Guthrie lived. There's a little house. It's right outside where you go into the theater, and and I believe that was his, his house up there. They were very dedicated to work that was politically provocative. And Ellen still is. She still looks at the seasons and she, depending what's going on in the world, she wants to always say something with the work. Cool. So you directed, I'll go back, you directed August Osage County um, Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. Tracy Letts has a new play, by the way, that's going to premiere at Steppenwolf this year called The Minutes. Mm, That's exciting. Looking forward to Mm -hmm. that. Maybe you'll get your hands on that someday soon. (laughs) Um, In that production of August Osage County was our frequent co-host here uh, and my friend Paul Strolley mm-hmm. and he's been on the show a number of times. Yes. Currently you've directed a production of John Robin Bates's Other Desert Cities mm-hmm. uh, at the Theatricum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> I'll, I'll mm-hmm. use it for short. Yeah. Running now through uh, September 30th. So if you're in LA listeners um, try to make your way up to Topanga. Now that's starring Willow Gear. How is she related to or she's in the cast not starring mm-hmm. I should rephrase that. How is she related to Will? It's the granddaughter. That's Ellen's granddaughter. Yeah. So that's Ellen's daughter, Willow. And she is a marvelous actress. I read some of the reviews. They're stellar. 
really. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank it, you. it sounds like a really, really fun thing. I can't recall uh, other desert cities being done outdoors. Like well, or, or <laughs> August. It was a challenge. We had to take the house in August and go sideways because they have a lot of, it's a very horizontal kind of space. But oh, they, so they're yeah. in like a ranch house? <laughs> yeah, kind yeah of I put thing. them in a ranch. Yeah, I kind of put them in different like levels. Yeah, Traditionally, it, it's like a three-story yeah, monstrosity well, we with a bedrooms upstairs you, and things, but you, you can't do that. No, in a, we're in wrap. You can't put a house up and down in an hour. You right. know, it was bad enough getting the furniture up. <laughs> <laughs> now, in addition to your uh, directing career, you're a vocal coach. Mm-hmm. You do that pretty much for a living these days, yes, correct? Yes, I, yes, I do. I met Victoria Morris, who's a big agent out in L.A. for a long time, and she and I started to chat, and she was telling me about some of her clients who were going out for Jersey Boys. Now, my sister Kate trained John Lloyd Young for the Tony for Jersey Boys, and she trained all the Frankie Valleys. It was part of their contract oh, that really? they got yeah. to train with her. So I said to this woman, oh, that's funny because I happen to know this technique that all these guys need to sing this show. So she said, can you help my guys? And one of them, Joe Bari, booked the National and I trained him for that one. And so Victoria and I struck a professional relationship and she started sending me her clients. And then just as the years went by, as a lot of our UCLA students got out there, my name just started getting tossed around yeah. and the and then the agents started tossing me around yeah. and just it was really from the results I was able to get with a lot of the students. Yeah. You mentioned that your sister Katie uh, worked with Cindy Lauper mm-hmm. early in her career before she really made it very early. Big. That was seven I believe she was in training for seven years before girls just want to have And so this out. technique of adapting opera style singing and mm-hmm. the training that you have to have in order to do that translates into helping pop singers and rock singers and Broadway style singers, mm-hmm. correct? Sure, sure, because the the work is really anatomical. It's very scientific. It's not about shaping the voice or placing the voice. It's really about going into the muscles that actually create sound in the body, down in the laryngeal muscles and strengthening them and, and correcting bad habits that can come from any style of singing. That's what I would call a push style, whether it's Broadway belting or pop singing or hard rock. People can accumulate some bad habits that will catch up with them f- after a while. So this is about sort of retraining the muscles to make sure that you're singing as healthy as possible, given the style that you're singing. Because real healthy mm-hmm. singing is opera singing. You know, that's what it sounds like when you're in a balanced style. But it's kind of gives somebody the strength to, to break the rules that they want to break in a way, or at least changing the ratio between health, that it's like 90% healthy singing and 10% push versus... 10% healthy singing and 90%, 90%, push, 90% push. push, right? Because if you start to get into that kind of a, a ratio, you're you're heading for trouble. You've worked with some wonderfully famous people. Someone in particular that I wanted to ask you about is John Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. You joined his tour to be his vocal coach for a while. Am I correct about that? Yes, this year I did. John's been my sister's client for 30 years. Katie's been... Really? Yeah. When Cindy got big and we started the school, he showed up. I actually took his first phone call from his management in the 80s. And he studied with Katie through the late 80s and the early 90s for quite a long time. And then he, he took a bit of a break. And then about three years, I think he came back to, to his training to tool things up a bit. Katie had toured with them quite a bit, as I said, and she was unable to do it this year. So they brought me in to step in for her on the tour. So she still trains, and we both work with him. 
So I went on the tour. With this kind of technique you're speaking about, this sort of anatomically oriented mm-hmm. um, look at the voice and how it gets used. John Bon Jovi has been using this kind of for years and years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much of that accounts for his longevity in the business, yep. I assume. Yeah. We're in a place now where we're seeing rock singers go into their 40s, 50s. Let me ask you some specific questions. What is twang? Vocal twang. I was reading an article about it the other day, and I couldn't not quite understand it. It's something about dealing with the overtones and the brightness of your voice. In musical theater specifically, there's a big emphasis on singing in a, in a forward resonator, right? We have five resonators in the body. Musical theater training, and so the majority of what people get in singing training is about getting that forward placement. Now, the reason why Katie's work's been so popular in rock is not all rock singers sing that way. It's not the only way to sing. If you asked a Broadway teacher, they would say that's the only way to sing. It's not the only way to sing. Using front resonators. Yeah, yeah. A lot of rock singers kind of just see, sing straight out of their voice. Now, that takes a lot of strength. And you almost have to really be born with a certain kind of strength for that. It's like being an opera singer. Not everybody can do it. Sure. And it can be helpful. I mean, some people sing with that in rock and some people don't. Or they sing with kind of a different, like we'll call placement. So twang is about getting it like super forward. Now, if you go back to Broadway singing like someone like Ethel Merman, that's, that's twangy. <laughs> like they're right out. Now, I had to yeah. learn that because I first studied Katie's work. And since I was a comedian, I got cast in a lot of those, you know, I did Once Upon a Mattress and things like that. And they wanted me to get really forward. So I had to find an old Broadway teacher to teach me how to twang it. Right. Sure. Um, once you have the strength, you know, once you do a bel canto training, you have the strength, it's kind of easy to shift your placement around. I find when people come to me, they're, they're, a lot of Broadway people are, they're struggling with their placement and they think it's because they can't find it in the right place. And most of the time, that's not the problem. The problem is their voices isn't strong enough to produce the sound they're looking for. So I go in the laryngeal muscles for a long time and strengthen the voice and then boom, then it's much easier to get that forward thing. And over the years, since I'm mainly in musical theater and spend most of my time with musical theater students, I've worked on combining those two issues. You used to be sort of you're in one school or the other, but over the years, I've tried to embrace that both of those things event. You know, they need to work together mm-hmm. on, a, on a Broadway singer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to digress for a moment. Speaking of putting the voice in the front resonators, mm-hmm. <laughs> did you know that elephants can actually swim offshore about 10 or 12 miles? No. An elephant recently was rescued from the ocean 10 miles off the Sri Lanka coast. Uh, Sri Lanka is an island off the Indian Peninsula, about the size of West Virginia, if you can picture that. 10 miles off the coast. Elephants can swim that far in the ocean uh, because they're buoyed by the salt water. Mm -hmm. And they use their trunks as snorkels. They think that the elephant might have been trying to get to another island or swim back to... India. (laughs) The thought is that these elephants arrived in Sri Lanka by swimming across the ocean from India in the first place. It's a fascinating idea that Mm -hmm. uh, elephants can swim that far. We do a number of elephant stories on the show, but a 12-hour rescue by the Department of Wildlife officials and another Navy vessel uh, helped to drag this animal back to shore. They tied some ropes around it and then sort of dragged him back to where he could walk and get back to shore. They can't swim for long because they used up a lot of energy and they were afraid this animal would drown. They usually wade through shallow waters or even swim across them to take a shortcut. And it's a, it's a miraculous escape for this elephant. And, and they knew probably that the elephant was trying to get off the island to possibly the mainland because he did pack a trunk. 
that's a that's a bad bad <laughs> elephant joke. However, he did not pack a derm, so they had to drag him back. You you coached David Diggs mm-hmm. in his uh, role as Thomas Jefferson in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Did you coach him to audition? In the first place, because no. he was, he was a, really a rap singer. Not, yes. If you can call that, well, I guess you can call it singing. He was a rapper. He was, he was a, a rapper. rapper. And that's how I met him. So what happened was uh, at UCLA, I have a colleague who's a sound designer that I work with, and he's um, a professor there and a brilliant sound designer. His name is Jonathan Snipes, and he and I were f- fast friends for a long time, and he was studying with me. And he had asked me to help him out with uh, this production of a play called Patty in Santa Monica and help him, you know, music direct and teach the cast some of the music that he had been composing. And David uh, worked on this project with them as well. He was doing a lot of multimedia composing with the opera. He was mixing opera and rap, and they brought David in. And he and David hit it off really well, and they did an album together, just decided to do an album oh, in, jo- in okay. Jonathan's studio. All right. And they did this album. It's something called um, Music Concrete, which is music that is formed out of things that aren't intended to be music, like things crashing and bells, you know. How do you spell that? Music I Concrete? I think it's French, like C-O-N-C-R-E-T-E, oh, Music Concrete. Okay. It's basically walls of, of sound, sound mixing with rap over it. Hmm. And the Guardian of London, I think, picked it up and reviewed it and called it the most essential album of rap album of 2013. And they got this huge record deal. So they went off touring and David started to have trouble with his voice from rapping. So Jonathan had come to me and said, can you help my rapper? (laughs) And I had done speech work. I actually, you know, I taught voice and speech for actors. So I did that kind of work with David first. He came in and I helped him learning how to warm up and warm his voice back down, which is also a critical part of Katie's work is cooling the voice off and getting the lactic acid out. And I gave him a, a routine and we and worked, exercises. Yeah, make sure and, that he was acting. Yeah, you know, he was working on the breath and you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And they went back out and he was fine. They, they came back into LA. He comes in for another lesson and he said to me, um, So these guys asked me to be in their show. <laughs> and, uh, I see. Yeah. And they want me to sing. And, you know, I, I'm a little uncomfortable about that. And do you think you could help me? Was so, one of the guys named Lynn? Yeah. So I said, bring <laughs> the music in. And, and I'm thinking it's some little black box workshop or something. You know, he said they're going to do a workshop in New York. I'm like, okay, bring the music in. He brings the music in and it was Hamilton. And I, I was aware of the project because I'd seen Lin-Manuel uh, perform the opening number at the White House. And I had a few students who had been using that piece to audition for In the Heights. So I knew what it was. And I was kind of astounded and said, Tuffy, do you know what this is? And he said, yeah, yeah, they're real guys. Um, <laughs> they so, are real yeah, guys. They're real guys, you know. And I said, okay, this is serious. So Alex Lackamore, the music director, got in touch with me, and he just wanted to talk to me about what they needed from David. And we put Now, he hadn't really, together. he hadn't been cast yet. No, I think he was pretty much. They pretty much asked him they to They really do it. wanted him, yeah. but, yeah. I think he met them, I believe it was like in a, a rap improvisational group. He met Lynn I there. See. And, you know, David is ridiculously talented rapper and I you know those particular roles in those roles that he played that's what they needed so we got a kind of a little game plan together for for him and we you know I started for David, for David yeah. and this was in the fall and the workshop was going to be in February and by workshop I mean it was the first music stand read for investors or for investors, backers yes. who wanted and to, I you know? was in New York at the time so I I attended this Alex said you know why don't you come on in and and 
see what he's doing. And so I was at the investor backer read for Hamilton. And just the other day, I was cleaning up my um, office and I found the flyer to it. And I thought, I've got to. You didn't bring that with you, did you? No, no, but I have it. And I I kind of put it in a little thing. I thought, oh, I should really keep this because it was clear in the room. By the time they got to the third or fourth song, it was, you could feel the whole room lurch forward. Yeah, by the time time they got to the Schuyler sisters, the whole room was on fire. My hair was standing straight up out of my head. I knew, everybody knew. It was really not a secret what we were witnessing at the time. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, I'm sitting in theater history. I'm always going to be able to tell this story. And here I am telling it to you. And I said, I saw Alex and I said, you're going to win the Pulitzer Prize. And he said, oh, that's so kind. And I said, I'm serious. And I walked up to Debbie and I said, you're going to win the Tony. And he was like, you're ridiculous. (laughs) I said, no, you're going to win the Tony, buddy. Yeah. You know, and so is Leslie. You were were correct. Yeah. And I, I, I wasn't psychic about it. It was, it was obvious. It was really obvious from the work that it was, Unique. Did you work with David after the show began to gel and they were moving forward with the production at the public? And um, no, the actually, no, actually, and it was really interesting because I saw him a good year into it. And I did ask him because out of my own curiosity, because when I heard the album, his David was a good singer to start with. It wasn't a heavy lift. And then when I heard the album, he had gotten even better. Now, I know I'm sure Alex, as a music director, worked with him, but I had asked David, I'm fine with the answer to this question, but I was just wondering if you've been working with somebody else as well because you've really gone forward. And he said, no, I'm just doing the exercises you gave me. And that speaks to the power of my sister's work. I've done a few Broadway musicals in my past as a stage manager, and I've always been amazed at how the performers can manage eight shows a week, mm-hmm. especially in the more difficult mm-hmm. roles. Mm-hmm. What kind of vocal secrets or vocal techniques does it take to do eight shows a week. Well, as I mentioned before, the critical thing is, and what's very unique to Katie's training is the warm down. Everybody warms their voice up, but not a lot of people warm it down. Now you wouldn't go to an aerobics class and stop in the middle. When you run the New York Marathon, they make you walk for three miles. And, and this gets, uh, as I mentioned before, it gets the lactic acid out of the muscles and in the vocal cords, it helps to thin them back out. It also has to take uh, stress out of some of the secondary muscles that you might be using, like muscles in the jaw, the muscles in the tongue, or the muscles in the neck, just sort of stretching everything back out. And so when you go to bed, your voice is going to wake up wherever it went to bed, right? So... By warming down, you're not taking all the swelling and the tension into the next day because that will accumulate over time. That's when people start to really lock up. So this way we get the singers in a cycle where you warm up, you do the show, you warm it back down, you go to bed, and you wake up at the starting position again. You're not dealing with last night's problems. Give me an example of, of some sort of exercise one would do to warm the voice down. Well, we do a lot of stuff uh, with pulling the tongue, with literally pulling the tongue. A lot of teachers will say, you know, relax your jaw, relax your tongue. We'll take like a paper towel or a gauze pad and actually pull on it and do some hard You G's. grab your tongue yeah, with you your fingers. Yeah, you just wrap it around you and, and you go, gee, gee, hee, hee, gee, hee, hee, right? And the G helps to stretch the tongue muscles away from the laryngeal muscles. And the H's help to close, get the larynx to close again. And the E valve thins out the cords. So you'll go, you know, gee, hee, or you might wiggle it a little bit, which stretches the vocal cords and gets, if they get stuck, it helps to move them again, make sure that they don't get locked, swollen and locked. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. And I do this, you know, this is, this is when we were out on tour with rock bands. This is, we do this for a half hour after, after John sings, I'm the first person he sees. 
after the show, mm-hmm. after a after three-hour concert he or whatever for a he does. Hour. Dancers who, who have the discipline to, to stretch their bodies at the end of a show when they go home, they're going to dance longer. They're going to have a longer shelf life because mm-hmm. they're not just accumulating tension. In relation to that, Katie is also trained in a lot of healing modalities. Mm-hmm. Does that all combined then with her vocal technique mm-hmm. and her other techniques, um, Reiki and Nam yoga and using yeah. tuning forks yes. and things like that? Yes, yes. And I'm, I'm also a Kundalini yoga teacher and we use a lot of pranayama to keep the breath moving. I have found over the years that yoga pranayama can fix breathing problems in an actor and a singer almost faster than some of the major vocal techniques. And I'm all for the major vocal techniques, but we do a lot of breath of fire. And um, Explain to me what that means oh you're pumping the belly and moving air in and out of the nose like (laughs) like that and it's Uh used a lot in kundalini yoga and it gets a lot of the tension and the congestion out of the lower belly so you can get a nice big 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 breath and it's something that i found when i took link letter training is a great result in link letter training but it can take a year to get that result and you can do a breath of fire with somebody for three minutes and clear it out both katie and i treat the singer and the actor in a very holistic way. So we're looking at nutrition, we're looking at exercise, we're looking at supplements, we're looking at body work, massage, acupuncture, all these kinds of things because the body's the instrument and anything that's affecting your body is going to show up in your voice and it's going to show up in the actor's voice as well. If you're a Shakespearean actor, they're very close to singing, you know, to deliver verse is very much the same issues. I usually tell my young students, I know it sounds like an indulgence to say you need a massage once a week, but if you're on a full production contract, you do. I know a lot of the Jersey boys, those guys were swimming regularly, and they got a massage once a week. No alcohol, no coffee, no dairy. So so being a professional Broadway performer Mm -hmm. is not maybe as glamorous as a lot of people think. There's a lot of work involved that you never Mm -hmm. actually see Mm -hmm. between the downbeat and the curtain call. Uh, Everything on the other sides of it are equally as important, if not more important, than the actual performance. Absolutely. It's like being an, an Olympic athlete. You have to treat yourself like an athlete in the highest training. And that's part of your job to yeah. be at your best all the time. You look at someone like John Lloyd Young in, in the lead of Jersey Boys and you win the Tony, you've got to come out and hit a high F sharp and falsetto out of the gate. You're being paid to do that. That's not easy. That's a huge challenge. So he was another person that was incredibly disciplined. I remember one time I went to see a bunch of students and shows and now that I'm a director, I was out having a glass of champagne and sitting in the audience thinking, this is a lot more... <laughs> it's it's hard work it's a lot of hard work and of course everybody loves it the rewards are are huge just i'm always in awe of performers whether it's actors or singers or dancers it's it's a lot if everybody could do it then you you know everybody everybody would be doing it yeah everybody would be doing it you know Um, that's why we pay i tell the singers that's why they're paying to come see you because you're doing something extraordinary Speaking of something extraordinary, we spoke of Hamilton a bit ago, and Jonathan Groff, who played originally King George Mm -hmm. in Hamilton. I mentioned this in our last episode, but I need to do a little follow-up on it. There is a podcast called 36 Questions. This is based on the experimental generation of interpersonal closeness questions, which um, (laughs) a, a couple in a relationship or having a date or even married couple, there is a list of 36 questions that one asks 
to each other. And some of them are simple, like if you could pick anybody in the world to have dinner with, who would you pick? And then there are other questions about your mother. It gets a little bit more personal. Well, these two people have written and directed and produced a podcast musical based on these 36 questions. It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Well, they, they released the acts individually. There were three acts, and uh, I listened to the first two uh, before the last podcast, and the third one has finally been published, and I listened to that and the end of the show. It's a fantastic little musical, and Jonathan Groff and Jessica Shelton are the two stars. It's really kind of a two-hander musical. Yeah. And they sing, and there's a lot of dialogue, and yes, they ask each other the 36 questions, and they, they do the answers. Uh, they're a married couple who are separated for reasons that become immediately clear at the top of the podcast. But it sounds like an old radio show with mm -hmm. sound effects and music. It's got a pop score that's goosed with like indie rock and blues. You'd like it. You'd mm -hmm. like it a lot. Mm -hmm. It's uh, done by a company called Two Up Productions. That's T-W-O Up Productions. So if you want to have a listen to it, I highly recommend it. It's called 36 Questions. That's the numeral 36. Mm -hmm. 36 Questions, the musical podcast. Do you work a lot with just spoken voice people? Obviously, you work with just actors at times. What about radio personalities or podcast hosts? <laughs> Are you hinting? <laughs> well, I'm always looking for ways to warm up mm -hmm. um, the yeah. voice. I've never really thought about the cooling down part of the voice. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about that. I just usually have a martini after the show. <laughs> and that's my that's my cool down period. Um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, no. exactly. Yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot too much. But it, if I were to come to you and say, I'd like to have a little more stamina, or I'd like to have this kind of resonance in my voice or these kinds of qualities in my voice as I'm podcasting mm -hmm. and recording, could you give me a quick maybe five minute lesson on maybe some exercises or techniques that I could work on? Sure. There's some really simple things. And some of the things that I did with a speech, I really learned from Patsy Roddenberg, who's the head. She's a very famous voice teacher and she had a voice from the national and for resonance, she would just simply have you, um, uh, place your fingers on the different resonators and chew and hum in those areas. So you have your chest resonance sure. here mm -hmm. and then the, the, the resonance in your throat and okay. the resonance in the mouth yeah. and the nose and the, the top of the head. Top so, of the head. Right. So yeah. she would just have you kind of put your hands on, on your chest and chew and hum and just feel the vibration in that area. Mm. Mm. And then try and speak in there. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. And then put another hand on your lips. Put the hands on your lips and the chew and hum in there. Mm -hmm. we're, we're chewing and humming we're chewing and for humming. those of you who can't see. <laughs> it's like, what's on the radio now? Um, and then speak right there. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Now do them both together. One, two, three, four, five. Right. And you just can continue with different sort of combinations of that. Because it's in speech, before I was saying that Broadway is emphasizing that front resonator. A well-developed uh, speaking voice on stage is accessing all five, right? So you're working those. So there's resonance. And then there's range, which is really a huge issue for American actors to deal with because most American actors will speak below their in the bottom of their range, in about mm -hmm. a four or five note range. This is a huge problem in Los Angeles, too, because... Are you speaking you know, of men and <clears throat> women both? Both, both. When people come into TV and film, and they don't think they need to work on their speaking voice. But you cannot be heard in the movies, too. So just some simple ways of opening up the range is just sliding down 
from the top to the bottom. Ooh. We're doing that. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. And then go back up. Ooh. Right, like that. Just kind of opening up the range. Mm-hmm. And then you could count from the top down, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So you got a little caught in the bottom. So I did get caught yeah, in the bottom. Yeah, so there yeah. we are. There's the American voice right now. Go from the bottom up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then you could slide up and down. One, two, three, four. <laughs> well, yeah, right? Yes, one, now we get two, three, four, five, six. Wow. Right, yeah. yeah. Right. So let's take a Shakespeare line. If you say, uh, now is the winter of our discontent, you could go... Now is the winter of our discontent. See, I got caught in the bottom, too. <laughs> yeah, everybody kind of yeah. gets caught in the well, bottom. Well, because we're Americans. Okay, so this is really diagnostic. And then you would go back up. Now is... Well, you, go, you do a top down. Now is the winter of our discontent. Right, okay. Now see if there's more in the middle and the top that you can spend a little more time in. Now is the winter of our discontent. Yeah, there you go. That's better. Now go from the bottom up. Now is the winter of our discontent. Now do the slide on the syllables. Now is the Oh, dear. Okay, yeah, here we go. Now is the winter of our discontent. Now just say it. Now is the winter of our discontent. There you go. See how musical that is? It happens immediately. Wow. It, it fixes it immediately. It's that, that's a good I didn't fix. make that up. That's a Patsy Rodmer. I'm a big fan of hers. I just think she's fantastic. She sort of, to me, sort of took the link letter training and fast-tracked it a bit. But if I'm having an actor who's having... Is having problems projecting, honestly, sometimes yeah. it's that they don't have enough range. You can start to work on your range and you'll be heard more because the human ear will start to tune you out. If you're, if you're speaking in a four-note range, you'll start to put people to sleep. You know, sometimes you're, you're in a play, right, and you're watching an actor and you think, oh, I don't really like that actor very much. And sometimes it's their voice. Their vocal you, Yeah, their, vo- their approach, voice. You're, yeah, you're just, you know. you're, the ear can only take so much of it. Next thing you know, you're out. This is why classical training is so important for people that are doing... Shakespeare on stage because you you can't deliver an evening of text like that if if you don't have a big range. So, young actors, this is it's it's gotten worse and worse and worse. My parents would have said, come in the house and I say, well, hi, how are you today? How are your parents doing? You know, now I, the kids are talking like, hi, how are you doing? How are your parents doing? Yeah, you know, yeah, it's very, just because, very much. Well, we're texting. We're not speaking to each other as much as we used to. I've had colleagues of mine who are casting directors that are saying it's, they're having a hard time with young actors just standing on the X saying their name and saying what pieces they're doing and having it come across the room. They would say, what'd you say? Who? What's your name? And because they're just not speaking across the room. And we're at a point now where the language of Arthur Miller and some of the, what we would consider, at least when I was younger, the, the, you know, realistic plays, that, that language now seems heightened to a younger actor today. That seems as heightened as, you know, sure, so the classical sure. language, because it's so far away from how they speak. Eugene O'Neill comes to mind. That's Eugene, uh, Yes. You, mm-hmm. you don't, Tennessee uh, well, Williams. You, it's I, it's yeah. this poeticism. You have, the voice has to be able to wrap itself around that. So if you're not exercising that on a regular basis, you're not going to be able to stand on a stage and deliver those texts. Do you think that modern playwrights, writers, are being less poetic in that respect as well, because they don't maybe hear the music in the text? I think all great writers hear the music in the text. And to go back to August again, I did have an actor come up to me who was a Shakespeare, mainly a Shakespearean actor, when we were working on August. And she said, well, you know, it's really not a language play. I'm used to language plays. And I said, it is a language play. It's staccato, <laughs> you know, like mammoth. Sure. It's, that's music. 
it's a different kind of music. And she was floored by this. I was like, you're not singing, you're not in long lyric lines, but if you look at the punctuation and the rhythm of that language, it's very, very clear. So a well-trained actor can adapt the rhythm. Okay, so we're not in Mozart, we're playing jazz right now, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But it's still music. And I think all great writers have that. If you could choose to have had one career other than being a live performer and a vocal coach and in the, well, you are in the theater world, world, what might that have been? And it's not too late for you to do it. I mean, if you wanted to be a, I don't know, professional chef or something. That's my answer. No. It was. I was just ready. I was smiling. No. Yes, it was a chef. Well, tell me about that. I am kind of obsessed with cooking. I just love it. I'm Italian, so we cook and we eat. And uh, I can sit and watch Chopped and have a couple hours go by. I, I watch cooking shows, you know, and I really love fine food and I love to cook and yeah. So you could have been or be happy being a professional chef. I don't think I have the palate required. You know, I don't think my palate is refined. I have a couple of friends whose palates are definitely better than mine, but I do love it. It's kind of like I'm, I'm in the Salieri zone of, of chefing. <laughs> like I want to be that and I'm just not it. You know, it's just like you just don't have it. You know, you have to have it. When I was a little girl, I wanted to be an astronaut. I grew up in an era where I was told that I couldn't be an astronaut because I was a girl. I wasn't allowed, and I remember this so clear, I was not allowed in the science club. I was not allowed in the, uh, the, uh, the astronomy club because I was a girl. And I'm not really sure if I, in the end, would have had the math and science aptitude to get wow. there. Yeah. I did, when I first went to theater school, when I went to Vassar, I was considering going pre-law, but my brother talked me out of it because he's a lawyer. He threw me in the car and said, don't do it. <laughs> Follow your dream. You That's know. kind of what happened to me with pre-med, mm-hmm. although it wasn't my brother who talked me out of it. Yeah, I, I do love close. the law. I have two very uh, close girlfriends of mine who did become attorneys, and I really did love, I loved when they went through law school probably more than they did, but I, I loved, you know, they were like, help me study, and I'm okay, you know, and I, I, I love the study of the law. I don't think I would enjoy and practicing it. I think it's a calling. I think people that go into the law that really have that calling are happy, but it's more of an intellectual exercise for me than something I think I'd, I'd really be doing day to day. I'm sorry I ruined your answer by guessing it. <laughs> I'm stunned. Wow. I think chefs have gotten really popular. They're like the new sure, rock stars, but, you know. Sure, day, but you know. to pull that out of my butt... <laughs> It was kind and of uncanny. Be actually right. It was kind of uncanny. Good I time. need to give a plug out to the Fair Maid oh, of the West, which do. is a new show here in Oak Park at the Oak Park Festival Theater, directed by Kevin Tice. This is a remount of a production they did back in the late 90s. Kevin was our guest about four or five episodes ago, uh, if you uh, remember listening to that show. You're going to see that tonight, right? I am. Yes, I am. Mary Jo? If you're interested in uh, you're within the sound of my voice in Chicago. It's out in Oak Park and it runs through September 2nd. It's in the Austin Gardens. It's outdoors. It's an open air like the theatrical. I think that's why Paul sent me out there. He's like, this is right up your alley. I think you're going to absolutely love it. I know how to put a living room on a wood stage. Yeah, this is is based on a very, very old Renaissance Mm -hmm. piece written around 1600. Wow. And it's been adapted a number of times and this adaptation is supposed to be just absolutely thrilling. Mm -hmm. Very adventure oriented. It's kind of a cross between Shakespeare and Moby Dick which you just Mm -hmm. saw Mm -hmm. kind of 
of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's at the Austin Gardens at 167 Forest Avenue in Oak Park. You can go to oakparkfestival.com to find out more information and to get tickets. But I hope you enjoy it, I, and I want to hear the full report Sure. after you see it. Um, I want to ask you one more question, but it's kind of a random question, and it's from sort of a parlor game that we play on the show sometimes called Chat Pack. And I, I don't know what these questions are. They're just random on a okay. piece of paper here, uh, little, little cards, actually. I'm going to ask you to choose one and read it, and then, you know what, we'll both play. We'll okay. both answer, okay? Okay. Pick one. Here I go. Don't be too nervous. All right. If you could have any book instantly memorized cover to cover, which book would you choose? That's funny because I've seen my book read cover to cover, which is The Great Gatsby by Elevator Repair Service. Oh, did you see the Elevator Repair Service production? Oh, I wanted to see that so badly. Yes, that was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen in my life. And I would say having heard that read aloud word by word, I, I would... I would have to pick that. Didn't it take place in sort of an office? It did. It had desks, and they yes. were sitting around, mm-hmm. and they just read the book yes. verbatim. And, and eventually they became the characters. So the, the main reader was the narrator of the book. Nick. Saying. Nick. Yes, Nick Carraway. So it was the actor who eventually became Nick Carraway started it. It was as if he found it in his Rolodex. Sure. And he started to read it. It's quite a long time in that book before there's any dialogue. It's, some, it's interesting, the things you start to notice about a piece of literature when you hear it out loud. Nobody speaks in that book for quite a while. It's a narrative for a long, long time, and Gatsby doesn't show up for quite a long time. So you would like to have that memorized? Yes. It was so beautiful. There was, at the very end of <laughs> seven hours, I think it was. It, was, it, was, it yeah. started it in yeah. the afternoon. There was an intermission, then there was dinner, then you came back, and... There was another dinner, and by the time they got to the end, this actor set the book down and spoke the last three pages by memory. It was just, I was sobbing at the end of this, and I've read this book Yeah, I'm, I'm times. surprised this production or some version of it has not made it to Chicago yet. Mm-hmm. Did you see it in New York? No, I saw it or in Los L- Angeles. L- the Red Cat brought it out. Yeah, and they worked on it for 10 years, I think, 10 yeah. or 15 years. Yeah. Working on it. I, I, heard, I read an article about it, and they said that they were trying to adapt it to the stage, and every time they tried to adapt it, they felt like they had lessened the work. And then I guess somebody at some point made a joke and said, why don't we just do the whole thing? And then that's what they ended up doing. That's how some great ideas are formed. Yeah. And great, yeah. great theater but can it, it was be a that long way road i think getting that thing up but it was incredible i have two and i can't decide which one i'd rather know from memory the bible or the complete works of william shakespeare oh no that's not really a book but although (laughs) i i have it as a book i was thinking novels both of those would be i think excellent to be able to draw from Mm -hmm. at the drop of a hat to throw into conversation. Mary Jo, we usually finish our podcasts with a segment that uh, we call the kiss of death. And it's uh, a celebration generally. See, I'm Italian, so you're making me very nervous now. (laughs) Paul was nervous. Paul Strolli was nervous the first time as well. You say the kiss of death, we think Fredo's coming out. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like, oh no. You sleep with the fishes. Yeah, what did I say wrong? (laughs) 
Well, Who it's, did it's, I insult? it's generally a celebration of someone's life, uh, someone who has recently passed. I have a kind of an odd one today. It's odd because it's not really uh, an obituary or talking about the celebration of a life. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the late, great Barbara Cook. Did you ever see Barbara Cook in concert or see no, her do something? I never have. Uh, we had tickets to her final, well, the, what was going to be one of her final performances in New York. She was going to do an evening directed by Tommy Toon based on her memoir called Then and Now. Mm. And I said, well, we've got to see this. This will be the last time you'll probably see Barbara Cook on stage. And she was not all that well at that point mm-hmm. anyway. Unfortunately, it got canceled because of her health issues. Well, she passed away this week at the tender age of 89. Mm. Barbara Cook was one of the all-time great vocalists that uh, we will probably ever see. But I wanted to relate something that I read about today. On a flight to New York last week, the jazz musician John Pizzarelli, you're familiar with John Pizzarelli? He's a jazz musician and guitar player and singer. He received a text saying that Barbara Cook, the 89-year-old star of Broadway and Cabaret, was in failing health. He and his wife, the singer Jessica Mulaski, uh, also a wonderful, wonderful vocalist, uh, had met Miss Cook a decade earlier at the Cafe Carlisle, one of her musical haunts, and they became very close. And they were asked in this text, would the couple like to come to her bedside and say their goodbyes? She was in her apartment on the Upper West Side at that point. The first thing I said, Mr. Pizzarelli recalled, was, well, can I bring my guitar? In the days before Miss Cook's death on Tuesday, friends from her legendary career delivered a fitting farewell, more music. Vanessa Williams and Norm Lewis, who starred with Miss Cook in the 2010 Mm. Broadway review Sondheim on Sondheim, were among those who came to her Upper West Side apartment and sang to her. Josh Groban, Hugh Jackman, Audra McDonald, Kelly O'Hara, and others sent audio and video recordings full of memories and and melodies. Uh, Miss Cook was in and out of consciousness at that point, but by all accounts, she was able to recognize voices and respond with a squeeze of her hand. So often, music can kind of connect in ways that just speaking can't. For some of Miss Cook's friends, lyrics simply came easier than words as they sat in her bedroom, singing to find Miss Cook's life from her success on Broadway way as the original Marion, uh, the librarian right. in The mm-hmm. Music Man. And I remember listening to that cast album over and over again when I was a kid uh, to her later concerts and cabaret shows after years struggling with alcoholism and depression. She finally came out the other side of that and had a phenomenally successful second half of her career. So for 45 minutes at Miss Cook's side, Mr. Pizzarelli played whatever sprang to his mind. He, he strummed the opening chords of The Way You Look Tonight, a song that appeared on uh, Miss Cook's 1993 album, Close as Pages in a Book, a collection of songs by Dorothy Field. Then came More Than You Know, which Miss Cook featured in her 2012 album, Lover Man, and which Mr. Pizzarelli recalled hearing her sing at a party once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he went through I Got Rhythm, the George Gershwin stable, because Barbara Cook used to close her shows with that number. Oh, wow. Miss Mulaski sang Good Night, My Someone, which Miss Cook performed, of course, in the music band. It's so interesting how life is, she said, that you could adore someone so much when you were a kid in your basement, 
like me. Mm -hmm. And there you are invited to the most personal thing that could ever happen to say goodbye to somebody. Miss Williams, um, this is Vanessa Williams now, visited a few days later shortly before Mr. Lewis, Norm Lewis, arrived and repeatedly sang Send in the Clowns from the 1973 Little Night Music. I find that a little uh, odd, but it was also one of Barbara Cook's staples. Um, mm-hmm. She became a great interpreter of Sondheim yeah. in her later years. Williams and Lewis then spontaneously sang Sondheim's Old Friends from Merrily We Roll Along and In Buddy's Eyes, the song from Folly that Miss Cook memorably performed at Lincoln Center in the 1985 concert version. I don't know if you've ever heard that concert version with Mandy Patinkin Mm -hmm. and Barbara Cook and Mm -hmm. Carol Burnett was in it and Elaine Mm -hmm. Stritch sang. Several Broadway luminaries sent recordings in Mr. Groban's message. He sang snippets of Not While I'm Around from Sweeney Todd, Mm -hmm. a number he performed at Miss Cook's behest at her concert at the Metropolitan Opera in uh, 2006. I didn't think of it necessarily so much as a goodbye as just wanting to show her my love and to give her some sense that I was there with her in spirit at least and in thought. Audra McDonald in a telephone interview, she said she sent a recording just to tell her that I loved her. Audra has said, once I started working with her, I was able to see that there had been not necessarily an easy way to do it, but an ultimately truthful way to perform in concert. And I don't know in your vocal training, Mary Jo, if you if you talk about the intent behind a song or the truth behind a song. I know you probably work mostly with the technique, but there, there's something to be said about what are you really singing about? Yeah, actually for me in my, over the years in my own private training, I'd say half of my work is that because working at UCLA inside the musical theater program, I've taught quite a number of performance classes and the idea behind the program at the Ray Bulger program at UCLA is that we we say we develop singing actors so we spend a lot of time on the text and sure. delivering the text and treating the text as a monologue and applying the fundamentals of of acting and a dramatic action to the text so I, I, I actually spend a lot of time on that with my private students I mean when I'm dealing yeah. with rock singers not so much because they're, they're not doing that they're not delivering theater but when you're dealing with musical theater we like to say to the students the operative word there would be theater right that's right yes so absolutely um, this is something i think is a real strength in the program at ucla miss mcdonald went on to say that the truth means not only telling the story not only in the most truthful way that you can through song Mm -hmm. but being as truthful with the audience as you possibly can i think that's a fascinating way to put it and something that she learned from barbara cook no one was better kelly o'hara sent uh, an email and said that miss cook showed us all what was possible and that her talent wit her honesty and her lasting power were all things that I will aspire to, sentiments that she tried to express to Miss Cook in a recording that she sent. I told her I would always hold her in my heart and sing with her in my heart, Miss O'Hara said, and then, before thinking it through, I actually said goodbye, and I'm so glad I did. What a wonderful tribute and a send-off for Barbara Cook from many, many of the people that she worked alongside with for for all those years. She will be and influenced. She will be incredibly missed. Uh, Mary Jo Dupre, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the vocal lessons. Yes. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cool down with my usual martini today. 
but I'm going to warm up with what you gave me. Thank you, and best of luck in all of your endeavors. By the way, I wanted to mention that you also do your lessons by Skype at I times. Do. You don't actually have to show up to your house in L.A. Absolutely. So if any of your listeners here in, in the Windy City would like to work with me, they can get in touch with me. Yeah, where do we go to get in touch with you? You can find my website, which is MaryJoDupre.com, and there's a little button on there to send an inquiry to my email. And my email is mjdupre, D-U-P-R-E-Y, at me.com. Where you at me.com. Where you can speak to my lovely secretary, Lindsay, and, <laughs> uh, and book a Skype lesson with me. Fantastic. I, you know, because you can take um, you know, a slew of lessons and, and get quite a lot of improvement from Sure, mm-hmm. sure. I don't do song work on, on Skype. So that's difficult, but I can do the technical vocal development. Yeah, fantastic. I look forward to possibly doing that with you. Okay, anytime. <laughs> like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, go to our website at booth-one.com and you can uh, find uh, past episodes. Uh, you can leave comments, suggestions, uh, questions, uh, criticism, yeah. anything you want on our website. Okay. And, oh, I have, a, I have a Facebook page too, Mary Jo Dupre Vocal Studio, so you can find me on... Vocal Studio. Yes, yeah, so you can find me on Facebook I've too. been to that, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, this is Gary Zabinski for Booth One saying, take care and so long until next time and keep listening. And we're going to leave you today with a little bit of Barbara Cook. Yeah.